Hi everyone and welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University and today we're joined by a special guest, John Brock, who is a cognitive scientist at Frankel Open Science. Thanks for joining us today, John. Hi, Dan. Thanks for, thanks for having me along. Frankel describes itself as uh, open science on the blockchain. And b- before we get into what you're doing with Frankel, can you explain what the blockchain actually is? At a very general level, blockchain is it's just a different way of uh, recording data. So instead of having one local copy of the data, you have the, it's distributed over lots of different places. Um, and the key property of blockchain is that once something is written to the blockchain, uh, so normally with computers, uh, you can create things, you can read things, you can update things, and you can delete them. So blockchain, you can do all of that except delete. So that's that's really the important part of blockchain. And then what that means is that, uh, you know, you've then got a permanent record of, of whatever has been written. Um, and so, so the, um, <coughs> sorry, really the, um, the key use of blockchain is in, um, oh, sorry, the, the initial use of blockchain has really been with cryptocurrency, with like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and the idea there is that because you can't delete things that are on the blockchain, um, it means that you can have, uh, you've got a permanent record of transactions. So, um, if I've got $5 as a $5 note, I could give that to you, Dan. Um, and then I can't then give the same $5 to James. But with. Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then, so, so then with, uh, before blockchain came along, you couldn't really do. Uh, direct peer-to-peer transactions because I could give you $5 and then I could change the record of that to say that I hadn't given you $5 and give the same $5 to James. So because blockchain has this property of uh, making things non-deletable, that then allows you to then, uh, you know, have uh, have these transactions and know that nobody else has... uh, you can't you can't spend the same money twice. Um, so that's the initial use of blockchain. But then since then, there's lots of other uh, applications of it, such as in supply chain um, and and a few, a few other applications that people are looking into now. Um, yeah. So 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 then there's there's a sort of growing movement within uh, the blockchain community for blockchain for science. So people are using this as uh, a way of you know a permanent record of um, scientific transactions uh so you know when people are um creating data or creating um you know new scientific artifacts uh those can be then written to the blockchain and then you know there's a uh, that then allows though that those things to be shared and people to know that that's already happened and what's what's the story behind the uh, the origins of, of Frankel? Um, I, I know that yeah. you. Um, I first came across your work, John, when um, uh, as an uh, academic at Macquarie University, which, which yeah. was actually where I did my undergrad psychology yeah. and, and honors. Um, but uh, so, so you've made. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Um, so so you've made you made the switch uh, across to to Frankel. So what's yeah. the story behind that? 
Um, so I guess I'd been working in neurodevelopmental conditions like autism and Down syndrome for a long time. Um, and I guess for a long time, we've been thinking about ways of trying to work with kids with autism uh, and kids with Down syndrome and so on. Uh, and we had this idea of developing uh, an iPad app. So this is a way of, uh, you know, collecting data that works really well with kids with autism, kids with Down syndrome. Um, so like going back a long time ago, I've been working with uh, kids using touch screens, like long before iPads came along. Um, so I've always had this idea that it would be really, uh, iPads are a really good way of um, building uh, or <clears throat> oh, of, of assessing kids with autism. Um, yeah, so, so I guess Frankel's really a sort of confluence of lots of different things that I've been thinking about, lots of ideas that we've, we've had um, over the years. So one of them is uh, the, this idea of using iPads uh, for assessing kids with autism, kids with Down syndrome and so on. Um, and this is something that through my research, it seems like something that's really obvious that works, that if you're giving kids with autism iPads, they're actually able to do lots of things that they don't appear to be able to do otherwise. Um, and so so I've been using touchscreens in, in my own research. Um, but it's so so then I had this idea of, well, you know, maybe we could build a product. This is, you know, a set of uh, cognitive assessments that we can use with iPads that will be a, a more accurate assessment of kids' abilities. So if, you know, if, if kids with autism are struggling to complete a test because, you know, they're freaking out because there's a strange person in the room with them, which is, you know, what happens in a normal testing situation, um, that is a, you know, not a true, true reflection of their abilities. So so I spent several years trying to get something like this off the ground. Um I was working with a friend of mine, Pete, um, who was building applications for blockchain and cryptocurrency. Um, and we were trying to get this idea off the ground and get some funding for it. Um, and then you know, we, we struggled to get uh, research funding. And then my position at Macquarie ended. And so, um, yeah, so, so we just thought, why not? Let's just try and make this into a business. Um, and at that point, we then started really thinking about what, what we do, and then the idea of in integrating blockchain into the application, uh, so that we can then use that for better uh, data management and proof of where the data has come from, and uh, showing that you know if if there's been lots of data collected and only some of it is reported, that is then you know that's that's sort of timestamp that's on the blockchain so that people know even if the, the data isn't so you wouldn't actually put the data on the blockchain you would just put the uh the metadata so so, so people are actually go back because because i think a, a major problem with, with so much research is that um quite often the results that we that we see reported in papers are just a just a just a small a small piece of the pie um, researchers will, will will pick and choose yeah. the, uh, the, yeah. the 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 data that they like, and to be able to to be able to actually say and provide um, almost indisputable proof that this is all the data that we collected, um, and we did it at this specific time. I think that's a really interesting development for open science 
Um, now, say I want to integrate Frankel's p- platform in my next uh, clinical trial for, for oxytocin for autism. Um, I want to mm-hmm. do just a straightforward with participant trial t- and test the impact of oxytocin on yeah. some sort of computer-based social co- cognitive task. Yeah. Okay. How does it all work? From, from, from go to woe, from actually starting a trial, if I wanted to integrate Frankel within my research, what would be different to when how a traditional how research would traditionally be run? Um, yeah, so so the idea would be that you would have this application on your iPad. Um, when you collect the data, the, the, the fact that it has been collected would be written to the blockchain. Um, at the same time, the data from the iPad would also go to some form of secure storage. Uh, so that'd be some form of... In the first instance, it would be cloud storage, um, uh, and that would then allow the data from lots of, you know, if there were lots of different people within the collaboration uh, collecting data, so then that would all be then kind of put in the same place, so then that allows, sort of facilitates collaboration and data sharing within the group of researchers. Um, and then at the end of the uh, project, you know, once you publish the research, you can then share the data because it's all kind of already uh, in this sort of repository and it's just a case of, uh, you know, changing the access privileges to the data. Um, that's, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. There's obviously, you know, complications. Of, there, there will be things like, you know, making sure that, that only the de-identified data was, was shared and so on. Um, but, but the idea really came from... Uh, Chatting to uh, Alex Holcomb, um, who you may know. Um, oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he, so he's, he's a regular he's listener actually, of the show. He, he's been on the show. <laughs> he? I, I, I suspected he. No, he's he's a listener. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 really, the the idea came from talking to him a long time ago. Um, I think he was giving a talk on you know open science and saying what he did was. Um, you know, he, he would collect his data. He had his script written in Python or whatever it was, um, and the data would automatically be written to repository. And then, uh, you know, in, instead of it just being on his hard drive, it would be written to the repository. And then when he published the research, he just changed the access privileges and let everyone see the, all the data. Um, and I was like, well, that's a really cool idea, but... You know, you need to be pretty smart at Python or whatever it is to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, most psychology researchers, including myself, you know, aren't, aren't in that position. Um, so then the idea is that if you can build those kinds of capabilities into the application that is collecting the data, um, then that makes open science sort of easy, data sharing easy for people who aren't Alex Holcomb. Uh, well, look, th- thankfully for the, the state of the planet and the general health of everyone, none of us are, Alex. <laughs> Holcomb, which is just a hell of a good start on it. So, so Alex, Alex is one of our advisors, so I, I, have to, I have to stick up for him. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's that's perfectly okay. I, I, I realise that uh, it, it takes all sorts to make a world and that he yeah. may have occasional utility. But that's all you're going to get out of here this time in the morning. <laughs> <But> yeah. <clears throat> Can I try to summarize what you've just yeah. said as 
uh, a kind of uh, a conceptual yeah. outline. What you have is a device and the device is locked and it does an experimental platform. There's a, when you put data into the device, it distributes the data that you put into it straight away via the normal cryptographic hash mechanism and basically immediately turns it into something that is written and distributed publicly. So the moment it's created, you're making a distributed record of it and you also can't really alter yeah. that. So someone comes in, bleep, bloop, I push buttons, the data immediately leaves and becomes part of a written public record. Now, that means that you can't alter it because, I mean, this is it's like a hash function. So every time you turn the thing over, right, there's a copy of the data. And then you make another one and yeah. it contains a copy of the previous data, et cetera, et cetera. So whatever, whatever goes into it exists in perpetuity. And if you want to give people access to it, you just have to really tell them where it is for the most yeah. part. So, so on the block. Basically where it can be located. Yeah. So there's two parts to it. There's the uh, writing stuff to the blockchain, which is just the metadata. Um, and the metadata can include the hash of the actual data. So um, for, for people who don't know, a hash is basically, it's a sort of cryptographic function where you put uh, some text in and then out the other end of it comes a short alphanumeric code um, and every time you, if you put exactly the same text in, or the same data in, you get the same hash at the end. Um, but you can publish the hash and people can't sort of reverse engineer it to find out what the uh, original data is. Um, but then what you can do is put the actual data in secure storage. Uh, and then when that is released, uh, people can, pair, can, can compare the hash of that data with the hash that is on the blockchain and say that those two are the same thing. Because, yeah. Man, this is, uh, this is too much at this time of the morning. This is an awful lot of details. Um, and I have the feeling that I have the feeling, the sneaking, suspicious, low-life kind of feelings that I have that you've not explained the entirety of it to us yet. And there's going to be another feature. There's going to be another feature. So yeah. the other feature um, is the uh, the token. So Knew this it. is... <laughs> <laughs> All right, a token. Yeah. So, so this is... Um, so this is... Essentially, it's like Bitcoin. So, uh, so Bitcoin is this sort of cryptographic uh, currency that people are using now, kind of almost like real money. Um, and but you can now create a token which is sort of built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So not on top of Bitcoin, but on top of Ethereum, uh, which is like Bitcoin but different. Um, and so then you create this new token. Um, we're calling it the Frankel token. Uh, there are lots of tokens out there already. And the idea is that uh, 
you can use that token to access the application. So instead of paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy these tests, uh, you buy tokens and then you use those tokens to access the application. Uh, and then, but what it also means is that we can then use that token in a way that incentivizes people doing open science. So, for example, uh, we can set it up so that if people collect data, uh, they pay a certain amount of tokens, and then if they share the data at the end of the research, uh, they get some of those tokens back, which means that they can then have more tokens to collect more data. All right. Um, why why um, can't you do that with just money? Um, You're so allowed you to give someone a discount if yeah. the, the, you, you, you have yeah. a series of files. Yeah. The files are all the same in the same format. And you say, I'll give yeah. you half your money back if you share it because we want to incentivize open science. Why do we need a Frankel? That's a good question. So there's a number of, of reasons. So, um, so, so you're right in saying that this kind of process of incentivizing open science in that, that way could be done with cash. Um, so these cryptocurrencies in general are good because it allows you to do like lots of micro payments. And uh, so people talk about sort of frictionless payments. So you don't have to involve, uh, you know, currency exchanges or bank charges or so on. So, so it works out cheaper. Um, but it also means that by creating a token economy um, that uh, you can then have a, a way of building an ecosystem. So you can, um, so we've got a, a, a post on our, on our blog uh, called Five Reasons Why uh, Frankel Has a Token. Um, and <clears throat> one reason is that it means that, uh, <clears throat> so, so, so the token, it, it has, ha has value, um, but it's not cash. So for, for lots of things, if we we're trying to, um, you know, persuade people to do things openly, um, All right, so how is it bought in the first instance if it doesn't have a cash value? Um, so, so you buy it, yeah. So, so you buy it with cash, um, and. Um, <sighs> but then, is it, is it possible to to, to ca cash it out, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in principle, the idea is that. Uh, all of these things can be bought and sold with cash, or you could exchange them for other uh, currency, other, other cryptocurrencies. So you can buy Ethereum or Bitcoin or, or, or swap them out. All right. So it's still um, a medium so do, of exchange, right? It's still a medium of exchange. Yeah. Cool. Um, but but the idea is that by kind of having it signified as a um, as a token that is for science, um, it's kind of separated out from that. So you have your sort of Frankel account um, that you use for for um, for doing science. Um, so so it gets away from the sort of ickiness, I think, psychologically of you know people doing open science and then getting rewarded in cash. Um, and what it means as well is that. Um, the, the more people are using it and the, um, and because you can use those tokens to do uh, more uh, do more research there's there's a sort of disincentive to swap out of the token um, and <clears throat> and also it means um, that you know if you've got research funding organizations um, so uh, 
if if you're a research funder and you want people to use these tokens, uh, sorry, if you want people to to conduct open science, uh, then it makes sense to uh, either get them to budget for Frankel tokens um, or to, uh, to to give people Frankel tokens in the first instance, and then that means that they're using applications that are designed to include uh, the data sharing and, and all the kinds of things that add value to the research that's being conducted. All right. So is there any way you can yeah. you can earn them mm, kind of in their own right? Or they're always um, brought to so, a medium of exchange full stop end of story. Yeah. So the whole yeah, so, the so, whole access to the ecosystem is is paid. You you buy in because these tokens are the things that allow you to uh, write a certain amount of distributed data in the first place. That's what the tokens are for. Now, I- institutional review boards aren't sort of yeah. traditionally known as the most forward-thinking yeah. <laughs> uh, co- committees. So, how do they- Neither are funders. Or funders. So, no one is backwards-thinking <laughs> committees of people who hate young people and ideas. <laughs> So with this, I mean, this is a very this is a very new idea, and it's a very new con- yeah. a very new concept. How? What's your experience with actually um, pitching the um, uh, your platform to institutional review boards or to to, to, to funders? Um, I, I assume there'd be yeah. some privacy concerns, yeah. um, but also just a concern of, of this is a new thing. What's your experience been? Um, so, so I guess the first thing to say is that. Um, you know, current practices with data security are not very good. Um, so certainly, you know, lots of uh, what happens currently is that, you know, with lots of these tests, uh, people are collecting data, you know, you're uh, writing them into Excel spreadsheets and then you're emailing them or you're, you know. <laughs> um, and so... so that's actually, that's you know that's not very secure. They're doing it uh, with secure cloud storage, uh, with uh, you know with, with encrypting the data as it's being transmitted um, is is way more secure. Yeah, because it's, it's funny because you see you see current practices, you see you see researchers sometimes who are using systems like Dropbox, which were never designed yeah. to actually have um, uh, secure patient data on there. And you see them emailing these these files, and you're just kind of going, "What are you What are you doing?" It's it's such an insecure way of doing stuff. So I guess if you could actually pitch this as a way of um, look, I, I think when I was reading up about Frankel, the one thing that really popped out at me was that it reduces friction yeah. across the sort of the whole process. Quite often, if if you sort of if you, a lot of people are hesitant to adopt these open science practices because they have to learn a lot of new things. I saw I saw a debate on Twitter uh, a few days ago where this uh, one researcher was saying, hey, it's really important that we actually move away from MATLAB and, um, and learn Python. And a lot of people are actually hesitant to do that because they've actually put together a whole almost career's worth of scripts within MATLAB and to actually move across to Python is going to be a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these other practices include a lot of work. So, the thing that really pop- popped out at me reading about um, Frankel was that he had this system where the researcher essentially doesn't need to do that much differently. You're giving the participant the iPad or, or, or device 
the participants doing the stuff, the data is being collected. It's all kind of happening, but it's happening in the background. And that for me is is actually quite attractive when it comes to, um, I mean, for, for, forget about incentives and badges. If you yeah. can just make the researcher's life easier, for me, I'm like, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, uh, that, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's obviously the center of any kind of product. The thing, the thing turns up. The, the no one, no one gives a fuck one way or the other. They're like, ah, yes, the, but the blockchains in this particular product have blueberries. No one gives a shit. What they really want is the data to come out of the specific device, get securely recorded so it's able to be distributed have it accessible for not very much money because let's be honest they're fucking researchers it's not like neurodevelopmental <laughs> researchers of cardiologists or fucking cancer biologists rolling around in big uh, fucking scrooge mcduck bins of money at any point in time so it needs to be it, it needs to be sort of it needs to be seamless it needs to kind of do do everything for you yeah, so um So the the explanation is fun because I mean this is a, a series of words flying past my head if I've been <laughs> uncharacteristically quiet it's just cuz I'm actually going I have to actually think about that piece of information or I'm going to have a fucking aneurysm. So it it is all though in aid of making something that is making people's lives easier. Yeah. So so um I don't know if you saw but Bjorn Brandt had a really interesting post a couple of weeks ago, which was making exactly this point. So he was saying, you know, there's kind of, yeah, that there's a minority of scientists who are taking open science really uh, seriously, and they're going out of their way to do everything openly. But in a way, that's kind of it's self-sacrificing. It's going against you know all the incentives uh, for for being a scientist. Um, or, or, you know, for being successful as a scientist. Um, and if you want to, uh, you know, get everyone else on board, really, you know, rather than preaching to people and saying, this is how things should be doing, what you need to do is to make tools for people, uh, tools that they actually want to use that make their lives easier, that help it, people do the research that they want to do and just set the settings, the default settings to open. So then people start using them uh, and they have to make a conscious effort to do things non-openly. So there may be, you know, if you're doing research that has, uh, you know, there are privacy issues or if there are commercial issues, you can change the settings so that it's not recorded openly. Um, but you have to do that consciously and you have to justify why you've done that. Um, so... I mean, I think that's where we're coming from, from exactly that point of view, where uh, really if, if you can uh, have applications for doing research that uh, have it open science principles embedded in them, then that's that's the way forward. Um, well, yeah, it's also you've got to give people an opportunity to be selfish. This is one of the reasons that people continually make the assumption when they talk to me. Ah, oh, you're one of those open science people. You're a fucking special little crusader. You've got your tin hat and your sword. Aren't you a special fella with your fucking quixotic quest against the forces of bullshit? All of which is us. The vast majority of the practice that I ever sort of endorsed or done or talked about is all good for me. 
It is it is a more sensible way to address things. There, there's a, a personal currency in having your research be more trusted. There's personal currency in having your research being more discussed. So, you know, if you want ideas to uh, be generally distributed, you have to you know, go, oh, hey, everyone, we should do this thing, but it's going to be a huge pain in the ass. Everyone's going to go, no, <laughs> there you go. And the best people proposing who these, these things are like, hey, I'm a behavioral researcher. I understand people. Here's my boneheaded fucking idea. We should issue by fiat a hard thing that everyone should do. Everyone's going to say, fuck you. We're done. So that is definitely the train that you want to be on. And it sounds like that's a, once we get through all the details, which is still swirling in the back of my occipital cortex right now, once we get past all that stuff, it sounds like you've got a platform to help people do things more easily. And that's, that's cute. Can we take a break, Dan? It's really hot here. I want to get another cup of cold coffee and I'm going to punch my cat because he's being a wanker. Let's do it. We'll be back soon with more Everything Hurts. Dan here, taking you through the break. I just want to give you a quick reminder of the various ways you can support the show. It would mean the world to us if you were to share the show with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is at Hertz Podcast. That's H-E-R-T-Z Podcast, one word. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hi, hit us up via message on Twitter or Facebook. You can also rate the show on iTunes or you can leave a review. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today we are joined by John Brock, who is a cognitive science at Frank, a cognitive scientist rather at Frankel Open Science. James, you had a question. Yeah, uh, this is this is um, this is a, a brave new world of distributed uh, web-capable applications. You know, all, all all of these ideas wouldn't be possible without. Um, Sort of, I suppose ideas that have come together from their total inception in the last ten years or so. So I'm I'm interested. I mean, you you were essentially what a developmental neuropsychologist in the typical mold. You got children and you poked them with a spoon and did tests and wrote papers. And now you are in this. Yeah, well, that's essentially what I do as well. I actually, I, I work in an autism lab. A lot of the data that I get is physiological data from children with autism. Um, a lot of the papers that we write are about children with autism. And I was just sort of imagining my transition into something where you're trying to solve this structural problem with kind of CS-based tools. How did you, how did you make the transition from developmental researcher in the traditional sense to person solving problems with fucking hyper crazy modern computer cryptographic problems things i look it's very early it's a thing people don't understand it's we're going norway norway to sydney to boston means so someone's what time getting is it up fucking early it was a half past six when we started oh well, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not your fault. I, I get up at that time anyway, and I'll, I refer people to our last episode where I complained about time and the fact that I existed in it. But uh, that's not a problem. It just takes me a while to turn my fucking head on. 
So anyway, the question yeah. stands, sir. How did you how did you end up in this really unusual situation? Um I guess just through doing research um on on autism, um kind of getting a bit frustrated with the way it's it's going. Um I think you know, thinking that there are lots of uh problems you know, doing doing research and thinking, it's. I'm kind of interested in what the answers are, but not sure what the practical outcomes are. Um, increasingly aware that lots of the, um, lots of the things we're trying to do, they're, they're all they're all depending on uh, assumptions, which I don't think are true. So. Um, oh, maybe, give me a give me an example. That's so. That's- so most yeah, of the research we could we could agree at great volume for quite okay. a while about this. I feel <laughs> so. So, mo- for, so specifically with autism, most of the research that we do um, is comparing people with autism versus people without autism, and that yeah. makes the big assumption that autism is this one thing that people either have or they don't. Um, yeah, and people are kind of talking more and more within the autism research field about there being lots of different kinds of autism. So there's a kind of recognition that it doesn't quite make sense to think about autism versus not autism. And at the same time, the research that is being done is still autism versus not autism. So it kind of feels a bit like, you know, that sort of thing before a paradigm shift. You know, Thomas Kuhn talks about the sort of crisis phase where um, everyone's thinking, you know, aware that there's a problem with the paradigm that people are using, um, but no one's quite sure what the what the actual thing to do is next. Um, so yeah, so so we've kind of been thinking about what needs to be done, and that is, you know, having much larger sample sizes. It means having much more reliable data at the individual level, so that you can. So, yeah, so it means, you know, having much more reliable data at the individual level, and it means kind of being able to be much more inclusive in the research. So lots lots of the time what happens in autism research is that you take a group of sort of, uh, you know, highly able people with autism because they're the people that can do mm. the research. Uh, you know, they can, they can yep. join a brain scanner, they can do all these tests. Um, then you find a result and then you say, okay, do these guys... We found this. These guys over here, you know, they're, they're very different. You know, they don't, you know, there's people with autism who don't speak and, um, you know, their, their features are, are much, or their symptoms are much more um, severe, for want of a better word. Um, but because they've got the same label, we just sort of extrapolate. So we need, if, we, if we're going to do autism research properly, we need bigger sample sizes and we need to be able to do research in a way that includes everyone. And you know, start yeah, to try and pick out what sure. are the differences. We we have a, our whole program of research is actually in minimally and nonverbal. Yeah. Uh, or, or people people who are a lot of the time in care. That's where we have to go and get data. That's why it's so goddamn hard to get. Yeah. People are like, oh, that's a that's a small study. It's uh, 
it's a small study. Well, that's why we're using physiological measures so you can properly power an observation because you might, I mean, it's also really, really difficult to recruit someone who's in a managed care facility who, and then after you have recruited them, as you say, you say, hey, fill out this questionnaire on something. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not good. You're a stranger uh, in a place with someone who might not necessarily trust you. Yeah. And the, the, the spectrum of sort of displayed symptomatology is really, really different between people. You assume that there's a, like a... A central phenomenon at work, but even the like the basic differences between hypo and hypersensitivity, yeah, really, really different series of behaviors. People I mean, can't, people pre- can't see, presumably, but I'm <laughs> really vigorously. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Pre- presumably, we're talking about the same thing, but there are there are a, a children who require. I, mean, I don't know much about uh, adults with autism. Um, we do, m- vast majority of our research is sort of, uh, I suppose, kind of 5 to 18, which is uh, the lower boundary of diagnosis plus a point in time where uh, child uh, c- care in the, like, oh, I don't even know if inpatient is not the right word, but just when you note the, the supervision parameters change. So there are some children who require constant stimulation who and who who really enjoy things like textures and bright colors and and and, uh they they touch everything or they listen to things they continually hum or rock or flap or twitch their fingers and there are other children who are totally disentangled from the environment around them to start with and you you, especially if you're going to say oh we're going to get eight of each are we going to knock them together in a between subjects comparison Well, cold fucking newspapers. I'm sure you're going to get so much useful data out of your, out of your 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 sample. You say, yeah, we need bigger samples. Well, the the the, the one thing that you can do with that is the whole push into the kind of neurogenetic research, which in itself is like, oh, we've got 150 loci now that appear to explain some percentage of variance in symptomatology or what it is. And I go, okay, well, you've we now spent an enormous amount of money compared to the primary research establishing that as a baseline. Where do we go from there? And I've asked people who do genetic research, okay, that's cool. You've got all these things established. And it's a little bit like the fucking underpants gnomes at some point in time. It's like stage one, genetic information. Stage two, um, question mark, stage three. Ah, oh, now we know stuff. It's like, good, good, good for you and your sliver of variants, you massive weirdo. I was, um, I'm, so not sure right to, now- I'm not sure how to follow that up, <laughs> but yeah. No, I know. If I'm yeah. if I'm being unreasonable, you yeah. can tell me I'm being unreasonable. No, 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 it's, no. A, it's a consistent source of frustration. This is why. I mean, my favorite observations for something like this, and all you're really trying to do is characterize one individual properly. Is to say, um, I mean, we've got got a data set that I really like, um, and it's a full kind of physiological suite of uh, of recordings, right? Yeah. But for any individual. We have the transcribed behaviors and the instantaneous sort of uh, heart rate, skin conductance, respiration, which if you're me and you've done a million billion uh, projects of of looking at that, I mean, we we just wrote a paper that was on stereotypical behaviors and heart rate. 
So if you're trying to if you're trying to stick it all together in our sample of, I think it was uh, somewhere between ten and twenty people. We have something like 30 hours of recording, which means we have somewhere between seven and 800 episodes. Hooray, we've finally correctly powered an observation. <laughs> but that shit was really hard. That took, the data set took someone 18 months to collect. I just end up playing with it on the other side. So, right. So, at the, the end of the day, I, we have some reasonably strong agreement that there are structural problems with how you do observations here in the first place. And with that in mind, you were starting to think about what can I do about structural problems to the research interface yeah, to begin so, with. And the research, but also the sort of clinical applications, right? So, you know, if you've got kids with autism who aren't speaking, um, you know, until pretty recently, most people had assumed that because they weren't speaking, they also didn't comprehend they didn't understand um yep and probably were also intellectually disabled uh, and we know now that for for lots for lots of kids that's not actually true you know yep. they're smart kids who just can't communicate um you know that and you know they just in lots of cases they just need some mechanism by which they can demonstrate what they actually can do what they understand and you know um so, so as well as being able to do research, also wanting to be able to do, uh, you know, have clinical applications where we can, you know, take these apps and use them and demonstrate that, you know, this particular kid might not appear to understand anything, but really they do. And therefore they should be treated or, you know, the intervention is very different for those kinds of kids compared to kids who, you know, genuinely are intellectually disabled. I mean, at this point, we don't really have a very good way of uh, looking at that reliably. Um, and that's important both for research, you know, when we're talking about this heterogeneity in autism, but it's also important for clinical practice and intervention and education and so on. So, so I guess that, that was the motivation. Um, and then when we started thinking about how it would all, how it would actually work in practice, you know, you start thinking, well, you know, we add, we put this in an application, but then if we have it all in an application, then we need some way of getting the data from the iPad or whatever you're using uh, onto something else. So then that means you need some kind of data management system. Um, and at that point, then we started thinking, actually, this this is more than just a way of uh, of of. Yeah, better way of collecting data. It's a better way of managing data. Um, and then when you start adding in the other parts about, uh, you know, incentivizing the, the data sharing and, uh, you know, keeping the records of it, that's, that's really, you know, how, how the whole idea evolved. Because um, at the moment, it... Um Primarily, it's the application of, of, of looking at these um, iPad apps for kids with autism. Yeah. W what's the roadmap? So, say in the future yeah. that James and I want to collaborate on a project and we want to collect psychophysiological- uh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, lo you love working with me, James. And we're both collecting um, psychophysiological data. Yeah. How will this work? Like, is, like, the way that I said, is there some sort of way where you kind of have like a Dropbox folder-ish type thing where you literally you have- this is these are the files and we put them in there. How's it going to work for for, for ECG data for fMRI data 
or for, for sort of big sort of genetics data? Like, yeah. How's this going to work? Um, so I guess the idea would be that it would work in 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 a similar way. Um, so so the approach we're taking is really to sort of think about specific problems um, and then to uh, the solutions that we come up with do them in a sort of modular way so that you can then take uh, you know the code that is being used to you know write metadata to the blockchain or push the data to uh, secure storage uh, that could then be easily translated to work with other software um, you know in the same way that there are you know, sort of apis which are sort of bits of software that allow um, one application to work with other applications um, but yeah so so yeah so, so that I guess the way we're thinking about it is is that rather than you know trying to come up with a generic solution that will work for lots of different applications uh, you start with a problem that you understand um, but build a solution in a way that then allows other people to uh, to use that solution for their own problems. Um, so, so, and then the idea is that uh, <coughs> sorry. So, yeah, so, so that so then the idea is that uh, we can then work with other people who have you know collecting data in a different way, um, and allow them to sort of frankleify their data collection processes. Um, and then those uh, those those sort of protocols can be put on the platform and advertised, and then so other people can then reuse them. Uh, and we think we can set it up in such a way that then if you put your application on the platform, then you get rewarded when other people reuse it. So it's a way of kind of putting the you know the protocols. Uh, and and improving replicability by you know instead of everyone having their own version of the Stroop test which they create you know that there can be a sort of standard version that goes on on the on on Frankel and then other people can use that uh, that version and you know there's everyone knows exactly you know there's a sort of standardization so that then when lots of people are collecting data on something similar instead of there being sort of you know lots of different versions and no one really know what things are important as uh, that then allows those other <coughs> sorry that then allows uh, sort of standardization so then you can have these sort of larger larger sample sizes well I um, look forward to seeing uh, where this is all going to be going uh, so any um, for, for our listeners we're going to put uh, details for some of the uh, the blog posts that John spoke about um, on our show notes, and also links maybe, to maybe a link as well to something that's just a sort of a basic explanation and how cryptographic hashes and shit work as well. Dan, I don't think I've ever set background reading for an episode. <laughs> no, before, maybe, maybe this is this, this is the uh, this this is the time. But before we finish up, we love to ask our guests some uh, quickfire questions. Um, just to get to know a bit more and find out more about their career. So, we wanted to ask you, John, uh, in regards to academia, what have you changed your mind about recently? Um, 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you mine. I like soccer during the World Cup because it, it, I know so many people from around the world, and so many of them get to be sad and disappointed. And I now, I'm now, I'm a supporter of the World Cup existing just because it hurts so many people's feelings and their pointless fucking activity. Um, so who's upset right now? The Belgians are upset right now because they lost to the Frenchies. Just wait till yeah, tonight, I don't know when this will come out, so maybe this will be hugely passe. The whole thing will be fucking being done and done. But I'm starting to appreciate it more and more because so many people get sad over time. And, um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of people in large groups getting together to do things like that. So, I'll change my mind about that. Well, one thing that has, has kind of become obvious moving from academia into, like, working in the sort of tech space and, you know, working with startups mm. and um, also doing a little bit of, uh, you know, working in science media as well, um, is just the timelines are really, really different. So, um, you know, when we first started thinking about Frankel, we were kind of putting together proposals for what we were going to do and we were talking about, you know, three-week plans with we'll do this and we'll, you know, we'll have a minimally viable product within three weeks and then we'll do this and then we'll do this. Um, and everything's in, you know, really short timeframes um and yeah. you know working in science media where i was you know going in and by the end of the day i'd have written two articles which you know the, even the idea for them didn't exist at the beginning of the day um comparing that to how academia works which is so slow and you know um you know at the same time as we were thinking about these three-week plans i was also going to you know, meetings with the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the university, and they were talking about five-year and ten-year plans. And, you know, there was no kind of sense of how you get from, you know, the beginning of the five years to the end of the five years. Um, so, Slowly. Yeah. So it's just like, the, you know, in academia, everything's very, so it, everything's very right, slow. So if you've changed, and, and if I you kind change of your mind about something, it's the, the time scale over which something's actually possible to be done. If you don't have a process involved, it's funny that you say that because I've had that experience doing consulting related things and dealing with people from industry who sort of think, ah, it's going to take from here until here. And you sort of think, oh, holy fucking Moses, that is, that's like two and a half weeks. And it's like, can we all agree on two and a half weeks? And something in my brain goes like, yeah, it's perfectly possible. Yeah, let's agree on two and a half weeks. And lo and behold, it happens sometimes. It's just sort of, yeah. Do you find that exciting, John? Is this part of me that really, the, the part of the shit it's, attention span part of me finds that really It's like, something that I, I've struggled with. So, so you know, lots of people yeah. talk about sort of 80-20 principles. So, you know, 80% is good enough and the next 20% is not really worth bothering about, um, which when you're an academic and, you know, you're kind of trained to be a perfectionist, is it's really hard to let go of that. Um, but yeah, so that's that's something. Yeah. Which- well, you're continually trying to have things be maximally good. Make sure the paper is super extra special, and you've thought of everything so they'll say yes to it. Or something's being graded, grants especially. Holy shit! How long do you spend making sure that the, the, the last individual, once you've got every, all your ducks in order, and you, oh, what else do we need to add? The amount of time you need takes to coordinate something. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're if there's a Pareto curve, the two two enterprises are definitely on different pieces of it. 
Sorry, I know this is supposed to be questions, Dan, but I got interested. No, no, no. <laughs> like that. <laughs> that. That's fine. Now, uh, the second thing we want to ask you is uh, what book do you think uh, would you recommend for everyone to read? Um, so, I guess a uh, topical one uh, would be uh, Rethinking Innateness. So, this is a book that was written by multiple different authors. Uh, one of the, met- the first author was Jeff Elman, who passed away very recently and that's kind of why it sort of um yeah that's why it sort of springs to mind um and another another one is uh the authors was annette kamala smith who was a like a real influence on me as a as a sort of young phd researcher um and i think for anyone who's interested in developmental psychology it's it's really sort of fundamental book you know it i think it was 96 it came out um, and really, uh, it's, and you're still recommending it. Holy um, shit! All right. You know, I'm, this. Well, <laughs> I haven't read it for about eighteen years, so may, maybe oh, it's that's not. Good. It's a maybe fundamental it's not that You read it eighteen years ago, and you still think it's interesting. It's pretty fucking cool. And so, right. so it's, it's kind of. I guess at the time there was this, you know, real division between people who were arguing that you know everything's in the genes or and every or everything's in the environment and you know you just have these general purpose learning uh, um so you just you just have these sort of general purpose learning mechanisms and uh rethinking natus was kind of one of the first or at least you know most influential books that was saying well no actually obviously the truth has to be somewhere in the middle and this is how these things kind of come together so you know genes aren't really you know laying out how development happens they're kind of adding constraints and then there's other constraints that are coming from the environment and you know what actually development is really just the emergence of properties that come from these different uh, from both genetics and, and environment um, and I guess yeah it's maybe it is now a bit dated it probably seems quite obvious lots of the stuff but I think at the time it was it was really really um, oh, you'd, new. You'd, you'd be surprised what seems obvious to different <laughs> people I always find a way to disappoint you John Brock thank you for uh, joining us on the show today thank you it's been a, it's been a pleasure <laughs>